Morning. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. You are a great and awesome and majestic and amazing God. You are holy, eternal, unchanging, sovereign, mighty. But we confess that we sinfully seek our own exaltation and foolishly pursue our own glory. And so we ask that you would please help us to truly behold your glory this morning as we look into your word, that we might walk away from this sermon with a true heart of adoration and love and worship for you. For you alone are the mighty and yet merciful God who saves lowly, idolatrous, self-exalting sinners like us. We ask all this in the name of Christ, our Savior. Amen. If you would please take out your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 1. Here at First Baptist Church, we have been slowly making our way through the Gospel of Luke, and this morning we find ourselves in verses 46 through 55. Uh, That's Mary's Magnificat. Now, just to make sure we're all on the same page with regards to what's happened so far in the book, that Luke starts his gospel with these two uh, amazing, miraculous birth announcements uh, by the angel Gabriel. Uh, He first appears to Zechariah, and he tells him that he and his barren wife, Elizabeth, would have a child in their old age, and that uh, that child, John, was going to go before the Messiah as a forerunner. And then six months later, Gabriel appears to the Virgin Mary, a betrothed to a man named Joseph, but not yet married, and he tells her that she would conceive a child, and that that child, Jesus, well, he would be the Son of the Most High. He would be God incarnate. And as a sign to Mary, she didn't ask for one, but he gives her one anyway, Gabriel tells Mary about her relative Elizabeth's pregnancy, And last week we saw how Mary then, with haste, went over to the hill country of Judah to see this sign for herself uh, that her faith might further be strengthened. And as soon as Mary sees Elizabeth and and greets her, well, Elizabeth, filled with the Holy Spirit, she proclaims with joy, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And she refers to Mary as the mother of my Lord thus becoming the first person to explicitly proclaim the lordship of Jesus. Here is God incarnate, the second person of the Trinity, the Lord, my Lord. But Elizabeth isn't alone in her joy because the baby in her womb, John the Baptist, also in the Holy Spirit, he rejoices as well. And he gives us a preview of his ministry as the one who would go before Jesus by leaping for joy, even in his mother's womb. It's the prenatal equivalent of, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so Elizabeth rejoices, and John rejoices, and now it's Mary's turn to rejoice. 
And that response of joy, that's what we call the Magnificat. Right? This is Mary's song that's recorded for us in verses 46 through 55, and that's going to be our focus for this morning. So let me read those verses now. Look along in your own Bibles, and we're going to talk about what it means, and then we're going to talk about how we can apply this text to our lives. Starting in Luke 146, and Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. I mentioned last week that this song of Mary is called the Magnificat uh, because, well, that's the first word in the Latin translation. Uh, It's Latin for magnify, as in my soul magnifies the Lord. Now, when we think of that word magnify, think like magnifying glass, well, what do we use a magnifying glass for? Uh, We use it to take something that's small, like a, like a bug or a fingerprint or whatever it might be, and make it appear bigger so that we can see it better. But when Mary says, my soul magnifies the Lord, she is by no means implying that God is small and that she must somehow make him bigger. No, God is infinitely glorious, infinitely holy, infinitely mighty, infinitely worthy. Right? God is a great God, how great thou art. And so the problem with him appearing small in our perception, well, that problem's not with him. That problem's with us. In our sinful fallenness, we don't see God rightly. We are blinded, if you will, to his greatness and to his glory. 2 Corinthians 4 talks about how the God of this world blinds our minds to keep us from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. And that's just part of our total depravity. Our sinful nature has infected every single aspect of our being, including our ability to truly perceive spiritual truths like the greatness of God. But God graciously gives his people like his servant Mary, eyes to see. That's the work of the Holy Spirit, right? To give God's children eyes that they might behold his glory. Uh, Paul refers to it in Ephesians as having the eyes of your heart enlightened. And when we have the eyes of our heart enlightened, we don't then add to his glory. Uh, We don't increase his greatness we just begin to rightly see him as the great God that he has always been. Then God is magnified in the perception of our soul. Now, why is Mary magnifying God in her soul? 
You say, well, obviously, because God is worthy of all praise. That is true in general. But what is the specific impetus, the specific reason for this specific praise? Well, look at verse 48. He has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. And so Mary is specifically praising God for what he has done for her in allowing her to be a part of redemptive history in this way, right? Allowing her to play a role in the incarnation of Jesus in this manner. He's looked upon the humble estate of his servant. And that word servant, that should ring a bell. Remember verse 38, I am the servant of the Lord. So Mary says, the, the doula, the, the slave of the Lord. Well, that's the same word here. God has looked upon her, apart from any intrinsic worthiness on the part of Mary. Right? She is just a servant. She is just a slave. She's a nobody, a young teenage girl from nowhere, uh, the little obscure town of Nazareth, a city of Galilee, a nobody from nowhere with nothing special or unique about her, except now all generations are going to call her blessed because she's had the unique privilege of carrying in her womb the Savior of the world. He who is mighty has done great things for me in allowing me to play this honored role in redemptive history like this. But now notice what happens at this point in the song. We're in the the middle of verse 49 here. Notice how the tenses now change and the focus now shifts. Uh, The tenses go from my and and me, where she's talking specifically about what God has done for her, and now the song shifts to talking about all those who fear him, and talking about the proud, and the mighty, and the hungry, and those of humble estate. And so she goes specifically talking about how God has worked in her situation to not talking about God's character in general, his actions in general, his dealings with mankind in general. As if to say, here's how God has worked in me, praise God, but that's just one example. That's just typical of how he has worked throughout redemptive history for all those who fear him. Perhaps you've come across the A.W. Tozer quote, Uh, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. J.A. Packer puts it this way, What higher, more exalted, and more compelling goal can there be than to know God? Now, we can acknowledge the truth of uh, those statements, but we also have to admit, uh, at least on face value, that's, that's kind of intimidating. Like, like knowing God, right? Like how can we even begin to know an infinite and eternal God? Like where do we begin? How is this even possible? Kind of reminds us of the Athenians in Acts chapter 17. Remember how they make an altar to the unknown God? And so they're like, oh well, yeah, we know that there's uh, some gods or some spiritual beings out there, but can't know for sure, can't be certain. So we're just going to make this kind of catch-all safety net altar to the unknown God, and that, that should cover us in case there's something that uh, we didn't really account for. But our God, the God of the Bible, 
is not like the false gods of the Athenians. He doesn't leave his people in the dark like that. Because on one hand, it is impossible to know an infinite God exhaustively. Like no finite being could ever know everything there is to know about an infinite and eternal God. But at the same time, God has graciously made known to his people all that we need to know about him. Not all that we can know about him, but all that we need to know about him, he has graciously revealed to us in his word. Why do I bring all that up? Well, look at our passage. Look at the Magnificat, particularly the second half. It's entirely about God. Like God is the subject of basically every line. We talked last week about how saturated this song is with the Old Testament scriptures, like themes and wording and imagery and motifs from all over the Old Testament, right? especially the Psalms. But Mary's not just like randomly quoting Old Testament verses about God. Right? No, she is uh, through this song, and the Holy Spirit, of course, being the ultimate author of this text, is through this song telling us about what God is like. And so consider that God has given us passages like this in his word so that we might know what he's like, that we might know who he is and what he does. So we don't want to just like breeze by a passage like this without giving this some serious thought. Who is God? What is God like? What does God want me to know about him that I might worship him rightly? My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Okay, so Mary, who is this God that your soul magnifies? In whose salvation does your spirit rejoice? Well, let's think about three things that Mary's Magnificat tells us about God. Point number one, God is mighty. Point number two, God is judge. Point number three, God is merciful. God is mighty, God is judge, and God is merciful. Let's think about these one at a time. First, let's consider that God is mighty. Point number one, God is mighty. Uh, Verse 49, he who is mighty has done great things for me. One of the things that we have to know about God is that he is a mighty God. One of the defining attributes of God, like part of what makes God, God, if you will, is his omnipotence, right? That that he can do anything. Like Job said to God, I know that you can do all things, that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. And we've already seen a reference to this attribute of God in this very chapter, right? Just look back to verse 37. Gabriel's reminding Mary, nothing will be impossible with God. Like there's nothing that God can't do precisely because God is mighty. Mary draws our attention to God's might, his omnipotence, uh, with an anthropomorphism in verse 51. He has shown strength with his arm. You say, what's an anthropomorphism? Sounds like a bad guy from the Power Rangers. Uh, But an anthropomorphism is describing God or ascribing to God with human features. And so you'll see the Bible talk about the eyes of the Lord or God inclining his ear 
or the arm of the Lord, even though God is a spirit and does not have a body like men, like God doesn't actually have eyes uh, and ears and arms like we do. But these anthropomorphisms are helpful in highlighting a certain attribute or description of God. So his eyes would highlight his omniscience, right? That, that he sees all things, that nothing can be hidden from his sight. His ears might emphasize to us his uh, imminence, his, his nearness to us, that he hears the very cries of his people. And his arm, he has shown strength with his arm. Uh, that draws attention to his power, right? That, that he is strong. Last night, my wife was trying to open this can of tomatoes, and, and she tried her best, but she couldn't open it. And then she calls me over, I get the can opener, and I open that thing, and I felt strong in my arms. This anthropomorphism, God's arm, that's emphasizing to us his strength. It's one we see used over and over in the Old Testament, uh, particularly in the context of the Exodus. One of God's mightiest acts, one, one of the clearest displays of his power. Deuteronomy 26.8, the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm with great deeds of terror, signs, and wonders referring to the plagues. Uh, You can see very clearly there how God's arm is an expression of his might. Point number one, God is mighty. And that mightiness, uh, in Mary's individual case, it finds its expression in her divine pregnancy, right? This impossibly conceiving a child by the overshadowing power of the Holy Spirit, right? Nothing will be impossible with God. But now more generally, in the general affairs of mankind, remember how Mary shifts from her individual circumstances to now generally how God works in human history. Well, God's mightiness finds its expression in how he, look at verses 51 to 53, can bring judgment on the proudest and mightiest of men. And that brings us to point number two. What can we learn about God from the Magnificat? Point number two, God is judge. And the Magnificat especially draws our attention to God's judgment upon the most powerful and exalted of men. Look at how Mary uh, poetically points out that with using, uh, excuse me, Mary points that out using three different illustrations here. Look at verse 51. Uh, God has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. And now look at verse 52. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones. And then verse 53. The rich he has sent away empty. And so in all three of those verses, right, the point is the same. She's just poetically illustrating it with three different illustrations. God opposes the proud. He brings judgment upon those who would exalt themselves. And when he does, well, then we need to remember point number one, that God is mighty. I think there's some irony intended in verse 52. Look how Mary refers to the mighty who sit on their thrones And so it's like you've got he who is mighty on one hand, and then you've got these mighty people, like these kings and queens and princes who proudly sit on their thrones. And Mary's like, come on, who's who's really mighty here? When the sovereign, omnipotent, mighty God opposes even the mightiest of people, 
Well, it's, it's, it's no contest. And we see that theme recurring over and over in the scriptures. Go all the way back to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 11, the Tower of Babel. Men try to exalt themselves. Let us make a name for ourselves. Right? They, they try to make themselves mighty. What does God do? He scatters them. He disperses them over all the earth. It's no contest. Or the book of Exodus. Pharaoh tries to exalt himself over God. Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? Translation, I'm mighty Pharaoh. Who is God? What does God do? Brings down plague after plague of judgment on Pharaoh in Egypt. Again, there's no contest. Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, mighty Assyria, taunting Hezekiah and his God, who among all the gods of the lands has delivered, my, delivered their lands out of my hand, that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand. Basically, I'm mighty Shalmaneser. Who are you? Who's your God? Well, what does God do? Not only does he destroy the Assyrian army, but Shalmaneser is assassinated. Again, there's no contest. One more, just to drive the point home. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar, mighty king of Babylon. Is this not great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty, he says. Nebuchadnezzar, you're trying to exalt your might and your glory. You don't know who you're talking to. God humbles him. God humiliates him. God makes him like a wild animal. Again, it's no contest. We see this over and over again in human history. When man exalts himself in the place of God, when man attempts to rob God of his glory, when man extols his own might, God scatters the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He brings down the mighty from their thrones. And then the rich he sends away empty. There is no human wealth, there is no human might, there is no human throne that is a match for the mighty God of the universe. It goes far as to say that uh, uh, this is one of the most emphasized themes in the scriptures when it comes to man standing before a holy God, right? How God humbles man's self-exaltation in judgment. We see this over and over and over again. Isaiah chapter 5. Just one example. Man is humbled and each one is brought low. And the eyes of the haughty are brought low. But the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice. And the holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. But, lest we sit here in our pews and we think, well, I'm glad that God deals with those people and gives them their due for their pride and their self-exaltation. Well, friends, this is not just a description of the pharaohs and the Shalmanesers and the Nebuchadnezzars of the world. This is also a description of all who, like them, have chosen to exalt and worship themselves instead of the holy and mighty God of the universe. Now, you and I might not have the resources of these men, the wealth of these men, the power of these men. You and I may never sit on thrones. But look again at verse 51. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. And that's a scary thought. 
Because it's not just the ways in which our pride manifests itself outwardly in actions that deliberately go against God, right? Things that might be more obvious and blatant for the pharaohs and the kings and those in power, but it's also the very thoughts of our hearts. Like the book of Hebrews reminds us, the word of God discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And so you may not be wealthy. You may not be mighty. You may not be exalted in the eyes of men at all. But what's going on in your heart? What kind of proud, self-exalting, I don't need God, thoughts and intentions do you hide away? Or maybe I'll ask it this way. What are the aspects of your life where you say, well, God, this is really none of your business. This is mine. This is my independent kingdom over which I rule and not you. Now, those areas in your life in which in spite of your verbal professions, in spite of your Sunday church attendance, in spite of the outward appearance, well, in your heart, God is not king. I mean, you think about it. Every single time that you sin, every time that you knowingly choose to do what is against God's word, well, in essence, you are, in your heart, making God small and insignificant and denying his rule. You're, you're elevating your will and your desires and your rule above his will and his desires and his rule. I will not have him to rule over me. And so let's put together what we have so far. Point number one, God is a mighty, omnipotent, all-powerful God. But point number two, God is also a judge. And specifically here, he is a judge who opposes the proud self-exaltation of man. And that sounds fine to us until we realize that we are the proud whom God opposes. Our hearts are laid bare before him. He sees the, the depths of our hearts, the, the thoughts of our hearts in Mary's words. So all our self-sufficiency and self-exaltation and disregard of him. But now add to that a part of verse 49 that we skipped over earlier. Look at the second half of that verse. Holy is his name. God is perfectly holy. His name refers to his essence. God in his essence, in his very being, is a holy God. And it's that holy God who is going to judge us. Pointed out last week that there's a lot of overlapping themes between Mary's Magnificat here and Hannah's song in 1 Samuel chapter 2. I just want to point out one specific one. I want you to notice the link between God's holiness and his judgment in both. So 1 Samuel chapter 2 verses 2 and 3, Hannah says, There is none holy like the Lord. So she's pointing out and highlighting his holiness. For there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. Here it is. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The God of the Bible is a holy God, and 
He is a God of perfect knowledge who weighs our actions by his own holiness. Now we begin to see the direness of our circumstance. The God who is going to judge every proud thought of our hearts, he is holy, and therefore his standard isn't like good enough or better than others or not as bad as her. His standard is his own perfect holiness. He cannot tolerate sin. He cannot brush aside our pride. And that's when the mightiness of God, that he is omnipotent, that none can oppose him, that none can stand before him, that's when it becomes a truly terrifying thing for us. When we realize that we ourselves are the object of his judgment, the objects of his wrath. That this holy, mighty God is going to pour out his holy, mighty judgment and wrath, his outstretched arm of judgment on sinners like you and like me. Point number two, God is judge. Well, that brings us to the third thing that we learn about God here in the Magnificat. And that is that he is a merciful God. And point number three, God is merciful Uh, Brothers and sisters, friends, this, like this, is the best news in the world. Because consider that if God were only a mighty judging God, but he were not merciful to us, well, where would that leave us? We'd be nothing but children of wrath, headed to an eternity in hell with absolutely no hope of saving ourselves. But our God is merciful In verse 50, his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Mercy, not getting what you deserve. In the context of our sin, in the context of our sinfulness, it's not getting the rightful punishment, the wrath of God that we deserve. But now how does God show mercy? We'll look at verses 54 and 55. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. What mercy? As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. In remembrance of the mercy that he spoke to Abraham. What is that mercy? Galatians 3.8. The scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, this is Genesis 12, 3, in you shall all the nations be blessed. Friends, God is merciful. He shows his mercy. He clearly displays his mercy to us in the gospel. That gospel that was preached beforehand to Abraham, that the Messiah to bless all nations would come from his line. The gospel that was promised to David, that his descendant would have the throne of his kingdom established forever. The gospel that was unfolding before Mary's own eyes. The child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. You shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. The gospel, right? The good news that this baby in her womb, this baby miraculously conceived by the Holy Spirit, 
will be born a human baby. Just like any other human baby who's ever been born, except, big caveat, he's also God. Very God of very God. And so he's 100% man and 100% God. And so Jesus would subject himself to the constraints of humanity. He became hungry and thirsty and tired and weak and even suffered temptation, just like you and me. And yet, at the same time, he lived a perfect life, never once sinning. And he went to the cross to die. Not for his own sins, for he had none, but in the place of sinners like you and like me. In our place, substitutionary atonement, he suffers the wrath of God, the perfect wrath of the mighty judge for all of our self-exaltation, for all of our self-worship, for all of our proud thoughts that are deep in our hearts. He dies for all of that, and in exchange, we get his perfect righteous record that we might be cleansed of our sin, made fit for an eternity with a holy God. But now, who is that mercy for? That mercy is not for everybody. Who is that mercy for? Verse 50, his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. It's for those like Mary, verse 48, highlighting the humble estate of his servant. And so you can think of that as basically being the flip side of our earlier point, right? That God opposes the proud. Yes, God does oppose the proud. But Proverbs 3.34, James 4.6, 1 Peter 5.5, three different books of the Bible, three different human authors, God tells us the same exact thing. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. His judgment is for the proud, for those who put their trust in their might and their thrones and their riches, but his mercy is for the humble, for those who fear him, for those whose trust is in him and him alone read earlier, verse 52, that God has brought down the mighty from their thrones. Then I look at the second half of that verse. He has exalted those of humble estate. You say, well, what's Jesus have to say about that? Luke 14, 11, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Sounds just like his mother's song. And we read earlier, verse 53, the rich he has sent away empty. But now look at the first half. He has filled the hungry with good things. And you say again, what would Jesus have to say about that? Luke 6, 21, blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. God has a way of reversing what man exalts, of bringing down what man puts his trust in. Man exalts might and power and pride, and God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Man puts his trust in riches and fullness and wealth, but God fills the hungry and he sends the rich away empty. And it's the same thing with our salvation. Those who exalt themselves, I'm good enough. I'm holy enough. I've achieved enough. I'm quite okay. It's those who are cast down. Friend, if you continue in your pride, 
if you continue in the stubbornness of your heart, if you continue in this refusal to bow the knee to Jesus, uh, you need to know that the message of the scriptures is very clear. God is opposed to you. And God is going to bring you down in judgment. But if you come to him in humility, acknowledging that you have sinned against the holy God, Acknowledging that you are poor in spirit. Acknowledging that you're hungry and you're thirsty for a righteousness that you know you can't achieve on your own. And you see your need and you see your helplessness. Well, it's only then in humility that you will cry out for salvation. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Completely empty-handed. Clinging to nothing but the fact that God is a merciful God. It's those whom he exalts. It's those who will receive his mercy in Christ. God has promised. Isaiah 66, 2. God has promised to look to the one who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at his word. And so I ask, what about you? Have you come to the end of yourself? Have you come to see God as a merciful God whose mercy extends even to sinners like you. Cry out to the Lord and be saved. The promise of the scriptures is that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Today is the day of salvation. Point number three, God is merciful. What then is the the response of the true believer who has been shown this great, wonderful, undeserved mercy? Well, let's go right back to the beginning. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, to rejoice in God's salvation. And that's a little bit of a Hebrew parallelism there. The way in which our soul magnifies God is to rejoice in his salvation as the objects of this great and wonderful mercy that we know we don't deserve, but sovereign God has saved our souls, and so we rejoice in his salvation. might be familiar with how the Westminster Catechism puts it. Man's chief end is to glorify God, magnify God, and to enjoy him forever, to rejoice in his salvation. What does the Magnificat teach us about our God? Many things, but we're going to settle for three this morning. He's a mighty God. He's a judging God. And yet also, he is a merciful, merciful God. Let me leave you with three quick application points as we wrap up here. Application point number one is to strive to know God better. Strive to know God better. Right? That, that's what we've been talking about this morning. Like, who is this great God of the Bible? What can we know about him? What has he revealed to us about himself in his word? I think far too much of what would fall into the category of evangelical Christianity basically has the Act 17 mindset of this this unknown God out there. I'm going to build an altar to him. 
Now, God has revealed to us who he is and what he has done through the scriptures. And so I hope, like as a result of our study this morning, I hope that you do know God a little better than when you came in. But your pursuit of the knowledge of God cannot end here. It can't be restricted to Sunday mornings. It can't be limited to the words that come out of my mouth. It has to come from your own genuine pursuit of the knowledge of God. It's certainly oversimplifying things a bit, but maybe this is helpful to think about. At the root of all of our issues as believers, I would argue, like at the core of all of our problems in our Christian walks, is that we are simply not seeing God rightly. Perhaps an oversimplification, but just bear with me. We are not seeing him as the awesome, infinite, majestic God that he is. And as a believer, I would say it is the first and foremost duty of any child of God to simply know their God better. To know this mighty, judging God who opposes the proud and yet is merciful to us in Christ Jesus. How do I do that? How do I get a right view of God? How do I grow in my understanding of who God is? Uh, The answer is you need to do exactly what Mary did. Steep yourselves in the scriptures. We talked about this last week. The the Magnificat is, is evidence beyond measure that Mary was a girl who knew her Bible. Her praise is full of Old Testament verses and allusions and themes and motifs. That's how she knew her God so well. Because she knew the word of God so well. Well, friends, we would do well to imitate her in that. Seeking to know our God by first and foremost devoting ourselves to knowing his scriptures. Application point number one is to strive to know God better. Application point number two is to sing deep truths about God. We've kind of like taken this Magnificat apart. Uh, we've like studied the individual lines, and, and we're really trying to understand what Mary is teaching us about God here, or what the Holy Spirit is teaching us about God through uh, through these words. But remember the context. Right at the end of the day, this is a song. It's a poem. It's a song that she is singing, and it's a song with deep, rich theological truths about who God is and what He's done. Unfortunately, uh, the discussion in many churches today when it comes to music, it's about the genre or or the style, and rarely is it about the lyrical substance. And some people say, oh, well, we sing too many old and outdated hymns. And other people say, oh, we don't sing enough of the classic hymns of the faith. And some people say, we have way too many instruments. And some people say, we don't have nearly enough instruments. You get my point. Now, these are not irrelevant but they're not the point. All things should be done decently and in order. Amen. But the primary concern that any church and the primary concern that any Christian should have when it comes to music has to be what truths about God are we singing? Now, do we sing songs that, uh, to borrow Mary's words, magnify the Lord, cause us to rejoice in God our Savior? 
do the lyrics of our songs, do they, do they call to mind uh, deep scriptural truths and rich biblical themes? Do the words that we sing, do they proclaim the great salvation that Christ has accomplished on behalf of sinners like us? Like, are they gospel-centered? That should be the lens through which we evaluate both the music that we listen to and the music that we sing at church. Application point number two, sing deep truths about God. Now the hardest and most challenging one I've saved for last. Application point number three is to pursue humility. Pursue humility. The first two are relatively easy compared to this one. This is the hard one. But given everything that we've said today from this text about humility and pride, how God, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble, my final encouragement to you is to daily hourly examine yourself in the area of humility. Friends, pride is such a dangerous and destructive sin because of how sneaky and how subtle it is. Like, like it's really hard to put up practical safeguards against pride. It's really easy to hide your pride from your accountability partner. At the end of the day, It's really kind of just between you and the Lord. But remember what Mary said. He's the one that knows the thoughts of your heart. He knows that which you cherish in like the deepest recesses of your soul. There's nowhere for us to hide. But remember point number three. He is a merciful God. He will not leave his children in their stubborn and foolish pride. He will give abundant grace to those who seek his face. So, dear child of God, just regularly ask the Lord to search your heart for pride. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. If that's the genuine prayer of your heart when it comes to pride, you're going to find that he who is mighty is going to do great things for you in your sanctification. Let's pray. Father, you are a great and glorious God. There is none like you. Father, please help us as a church, as individuals, to know you better. Or to make that our heart's desire to grow in our knowledge of you that we might worship you rightly. For Father, you are a mighty God and you are a judging God. But you're also a merciful God and your mercy has been shown to us in Christ Jesus. So God, we pray that we would be people who would cherish and love and exult in that gospel. Father, we pray for those in this room who do not know you, who continue to walk in the stubbornness of their hearts. Father, we pray that today would be the day of salvation, that today would be the day that the Holy Spirit would do the work of regeneration in their hearts, that they might come to see you 
as the one and the only one who is worthy to be praised. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.